Welcome to the South Elkhorn Christian Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the weekly messages. For bulletin material, reflection guides, and other resources, visit southelkhorncc.org. So, why this passage? Why, why this passage from the Sermon on the Mount? Why this passage? If you've not yet read ahead, and if you didn't uh, read my Michael's musings, which go out mostly every Friday, sometimes every other Friday, sometimes once a month, then perhaps you don't know that the passage we're about to read can be a little sensitive, might have some baggage, might make us uncomfortable. I'll be honest this morning. It made me uncomfortable, and I asked myself this question. Why this passage? Well, the reason I was even considering this passage from the Sermon on the Mount is because, I know it's hard to remember, but in February of 2020, just before the world changed dramatically with the advent of the coronavirus and the pandemic, we were actually doing a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. We touched on the Beatitudes. We touched on, as Pastor Holly mentioned in the children's moment just a few moments ago, we touched on salt and light, the fact that the church, the body of Christ is meant to be this distinctive community of faith that people can see the love and justice and mercy of God within. And Pastor Holly preached an incredible sermon on, um, on anger, Jesus' teaching on anger. And so since we had just been in the Lord's Prayer in September, we had been in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer, and I just preached a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, I thought, you know, let's just stay in the Sermon on the Mount, and we can just continue, continue where we left off from February 2020. And where we left off is right here. So I opened up the scriptures, and I began to read, and I went, oh, no, yikes, this makes me uncomfortable. One thing I've learned about myself is that when I get uncomfortable, when I get resistant, when I get hesitant, the Spirit of God can sometimes help me remember to be curious. Why is it that I'm uncomfortable? Why is it that I'm resistant? What is it that I'm hesitant to? Maybe there's something to learn. And the Spirit of God met me in my hesitancy and in my discomfort and in my uncertainty about this passage, a passage I've never preached on, a passage I don't ever remember hearing a sermon on, a passage I can understand why a lot of preachers avoid and said, perhaps this sermon, perhaps this message is one that needs to be shared and one that needs to be heard, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you. In fact, maybe because it's so uncomfortable. And the Spirit of God encouraged me to trust that this church, one of the values of this church is courageous conversation. That is, to enter into the hard and difficult and challenging stuff of life, to have honest and real and vulnerable conversation about what matters and what we struggle with, and how God is leading us. And so this morning, I want to invite you to read these words of Jesus, this teaching of Jesus. And I recognize it might make some of us, myself included, a bit uncomfortable. It comes with a lot lot of baggage. It's material that deals with lust and adultery, marriage and divorce, realities that have impacted all of us in one way or another. And trust that the Spirit of Christ wants to meet us here with compassion and love, acceptance, mercy, and even, yes, new life. 
And so I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as together we pick up from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 27 through 32. Before I begin reading, I do also want to point, one, point out one other thing, and that is when Jesus gets into this teaching just a little bit before, he, he does this interesting thing, and you can hear it here twice. Jesus will say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus, as Pastor Holly described for us, seated on the hillside there, teaching his closest disciples, and through that moment, teaching the early church and all of us, Jesus was reminiscent of uh, another person who experienced God on a mountain and brought teaching to the people, Moses. And in case we miss that obvious connection of someone on a mountain teaching, Jesus mentions and draws back on that teaching by saying, you've heard that it was said, i.e. the Ten Commandments, the teaching from Mount Sinai. But I say to you, let's read together these words from Matthew 5, 27 through 32. Follow along with your hearts and minds as I read. You have heard that it was said, but I, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into the trash heap. In Greek, Gehenna, which is translated here, hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into Gehenna, the trash heap, or as it is translated here, hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, the word is porneia in Greek, here translated unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As hard and difficult, strange and challenging as these words may be, may the Spirit of God once more make these the very words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You need to leave the church. They said, you can't be here anymore. You need to leave the church. A friend was telling me about her experience growing up in a central Kentucky community just a few decades ago and about her, how her family was very involved in their local, their local church, very involved in their local church. And one day she found out that her dad had left. One day in the middle of the night just left. And not only did she feel the abandonment and the pain of that, the uncertainty of that experience, but then she found out not too much longer after that, once the divorce was finalized, that she and her family were no longer welcome at their church. She found out later why her mom told her that one of the elders of the church had come and, and, and told her very directly, you're divorced. And not only that, you're now a single woman, and we think that you can be a temptation to other men in the church, and therefore, you and your family need to leave. You're no longer welcome at this church. 
There's something about that that just reaches deep into my soul and makes me enraged. Makes me enraged, not least because what we see over and over and over again in the gospel accounts, what we see over and over and over again in the New Testament is the way that Jesus enters into the frailty and difficulty and challenge and pain and sorrow of vulnerable people. And here was a woman who had been left, recently divorced, was trying to figure out how to be a single mom, and support her family and her kids, a woman vulnerable, and the church wasn't the hands and feet of Jesus, but instead kicked her and her family to the curb. They had to leave the community. It wasn't a big community. It was a small community, and they felt the shame and the judgment and the pain and the, the blame that were in the eyes of church people who may not have drawn explicitly on this passage of Scripture, but surely it was in the orbit of their thinking, in the orbit of justifying their prejudice and judgment, in the orbit of their weaponization of Scripture, what I might even call spiritual malpractice. Part of what makes me uncomfortable about this passage of Scripture is the way that it's been weaponized in the church to hurt and to harm people when everywhere in Scripture we see Jesus bringing hope and healing. When we see Jesus reaching out to vulnerable people who are being exploited and kicked to the curb and doing the very opposite of what these passages of Scriptures have often done. And so perhaps through the Spirit of God, encouraging me to lean into my hesitancy and discomfort, I realized, I don't know that I've ever heard a pastor or preacher say, and so maybe it's important for me to say this day, that if you have gone through a divorce, for whatever reason, I want you to know that you are accepted by the love and mercy of God. And that I am so sorry for the way the institutional church has weaponized this to hurt and harm people, especially in a time of need. When what we need when we go through the pain and difficulty of a hard experience, and while I've never been through divorce and won't pretend to know the hardship of divorce, I've walked alongside people who have gone through divorce and know the difficulty and the pain and the grief and the sorrow and know how important it is to have a supportive community. Walk alongside you. And what we see in the person of Christ is the very presence of God entering into the sorrow and brokenness and difficulty of life to walk alongside people. The calling of the church is not to push people away and kick people out. It's to walk alongside people in sorrow and brokenness and grief so perhaps one of the reasons the Spirit of God was confirming that I need to preach this passage is to say out loud that I am sorry. I recognize that as a clergy person, as a person who speaks on behalf of the church, that this message hasn't gotten out. If you're divorced, if you've gone through the pain and sorrow of a difficult breakup, whatever the reasons, you are accepted and you are loved and you are not defined by your marital status. That the church is about healing and hope and new life and walking alongside you in that journey just as Christ would do. 
And as I open myself up to, to realize how important it is to start naming these things, I realize that, that part of my hesitancy and my discomfort and my dis-ease with this passage of Scripture is part of this whole complicity of silence where we don't talk about the very real, very hard, very challenging, very difficult realities of life. We tend to sweep them under the rug and we don't name them because we're afraid if we name them, they're more likely to happen. I'll tell you, I don't want to be, I don't want you to judge me and think that somehow I'm condoning divorce because I just said what I just said. And so maybe that contributed to my hesitancy. I don't want people to think that I'm just frivolous with the institution of marriage, that I'm just frivolous with the idea of love and commitment and faithfulness, that I'm just frivolous and that I want to take the easy way out and just pat people on the back no matter what their decisions are. I don't know of any person who enters into a marriage relationship who is doing so frivolously with the idea of divorce. And if they are, well, then this passage of Scripture speaks very directly to them. That's not what marriage is about. Marriage isn't about using and abusing your spouse, so then you can go on and do something else. And Jesus touches on that very clearly. But one of the reasons why I might be hesitant is because I don't want to be seen. But the truth is, whenever we talk about things, we don't make them more likely to happen. It's okay to have hard conversations. It doesn't make them more likely to happen. In fact, quite the opposite. Once we push past the silence and get past the shame that's involved, then we can have honest conversation and develop constructive ways way forward. Then we can talk about the dynamics and the challenges and we can get at the very heart of the matter. And talking about divorce and naming that people who have been divorced are accepted won't make it more likely that people are going to get divorced. And doesn't make me pro-divorce. Doesn't make you pro-divorce. Makes us honest. And things need to be named said out loud. In fact, one of, the mess, one of the beautiful realities about this passage of scripture is that Jesus' teaching touches on the hard and very real stuff of life. Insofar as the church avoids and ignores the very hard and real stuff of life, then it's not being faithful to the very way that Jesus went about his ministry. And so it's important for the church to name the beauty and the sanctity and the holiness of marriage and that when marriages fall apart for one reason or another, the church will be there to accept and love and find grace and hope and new life for people right alongside them. Also importantly, in our day and age, in our day and age, unfortunately, these passages of scripture have been used too often, have been read and ignored and not talked about such that people who are in abusive and toxic and unhealthy and unsafe marriages stay there precisely because they're afraid of the judgment, the shame, and the fact that that's not what God wants for them. And I want to say this this morning clearly and directly. God does not want you to be in an abusive, unhealthy, and unsafe marriage or relationship. And that this church will stand by you and stand beside you and help you and support you. And I, reach out to me, please. Would love to help you find the support and the strength and the courage and bravery that I know it takes to exit a difficult and unsafe and toxic relationship.
There have been news stories in this year and in the year prior about denominations and religious leaders who have counseled women who have been abused and hurt to stay in their relationship, to pray for and to forgive their abusive spouse. And let me tell you that Jesus didn't die for you to stay in an abusive relationship. That's not what it means to have the sacrificial love of Christ, that you would be abused. And so perhaps the Spirit of God was was upon me to reach into my own hesitancy and discomfort so that that message can be heard and said this morning. I don't think that's what this passage of Scripture is meant to justify or support. It's also true, it's also true and unfortunate that the way that this teaching of Jesus is recorded and presented is, let's, let's name it, <laughs> patriarchal in the following way. It only talks about men's desire and it only talks about men divorcing their wives. As if women don't have desire and as if women shouldn't or can't divorce their spouses. I wish that maybe Jesus had been more inclusive in his language. But even so, I find this one thing really interesting, and it pushes back on that first story I shared at the beginning of this message. In Jesus' teaching on adultery and lust, at the very end of it, who takes responsibility? There's no victim blaming in Jesus' teaching. No one gets to say, well, because she was wearing something, or because she had had a drink, or because she didn't say no, that somehow, somehow that absolves me of responsibility. No, Jesus says, hey guys, men, discipline your desire. You're responsible for your own desire. You're responsible for your own exploitation. You're responsible for your own decisions. You're responsible for your own actions. Don't blame somebody else. In a world in which that logic continues, the words of Jesus are pretty powerful and would have and and should have chastened the words of that elder to that young mom trying to figure out how to live life after being abandoned and divorced and trying to make do for for her children, would have chastened him from implicitly blaming her for whatever temptation she might have been for other men in the life of the church. That's not how it works. And so young men, middle-aged men, well-seasoned men, listen to me. We're responsible for our desire. We're responsible for our own actions and our own decisions, and we can't blame it on someone else. I also recently had a conversation with someone who um, had heard a sermon recently in our greater Lexington community, and I don't like to comment on other people's sermons or on other churches' sermons. I think that's problematic. But when someone comes and has a concern and says, I need to know, is it true? I, it felt relevant to this passage of Scripture, and it was one more confirmation about why this message perhaps needed to be preached. Said, I, learned, I heard recently in a sermon, and it really bothered me, that, that you know, I, I'm in my 20s. I'm not married yet. And I'm going to school and I'm trying to figure out how, uh, how to build a life and I'm focusing on myself right now and I'm, I'm trying to be a responsible person and, 
And then I hear this sermon, and in the sermon it suggested, if not outright said, that if you wait until your 30s, if you don't get married right away, right out of high school or in college or in your early 20s, if you wait and if you pursue a degree in your education, and if you if you focus on working on yourself, that somehow that makes you selfish. And then, and then I heard it said that, that how can you possibly enter into one of the most selfless institutions when all you've done is, has been selfish for a decade? And I had many words pop up in my mind about that. <laughs> that's untrue. That's, un, that's false. Not only are you not being selfish, but the fact that you're making intentional decisions about working on yourself so that you can be a responsible person, that prepares you well for marriage. So I also want to say this this morning, that if you, there is social pressure on young people to get married. I'm glad that that's dissipating and lessening. Pressure from parents to get married and have grandkids, pressure from society that that's just what you do. Young people listen to me this morning. Do not get married simply because you're supposed to get married. It's important to have conversation and discussions and decisions and to be ready and prepared for the, for the life that is ahead and what it means to be a responsible and loving and faithful partner. And that isn't a decision to take lightly. And it isn't one just to do because that's what you're supposed to do. And parents and grandparents, take it easy. It's hard to be a young person for a whole bunch of different reasons. I know that young people don't need the added pressure of feeling like they have to do something right now or else everything's going to go wrong. It's not. It's okay. It's also okay to name how much you love your kids and your grandkids, how much you want children, uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's okay too. But let young people lead and live and grow I once heard a wise person say to me, for those who choose to get married, um, you'll often have three marriages. And for some people, it's to the same person. For others of us, it's not. Because the truth is, over the course of a lifetime, we do change. And part of marriage is renegotiating those changes and figuring out if this is the person who we need to continue to be with. And sometimes, for heartbreaking and difficult reasons, it's not. And the word in the passage of scripture here, when Jesus preaches about marriage and divorce, that word porneia, it can mean a whole lot of things. And while I don't want to get caught up on what's allowed and what's not allowed, I, I, I'm more interested in Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, as an invitation for us to try and get at what the heart of the teaching is, which is to love faithfully the person that we're with, And sometimes that means to say goodbye. I also need to say this. For those of you who are children of divorced parents, God loves you. Your parents love you. And divorce is never your fault. Divorce is never your fault. And know that you can talk about your feelings with a community that wants to support you if your parents are going through a difficult and hard time. Know that you can talk to your parents. Divorce 
is never your fault. Your parents know that. They may not say it or they may have said it to you, but maybe you need to hear me say it to you this morning. It is not your fault. Yes, this is an uncomfortable and difficult passage because we live in a time and place that is different from the time and place in which Jesus preached and, t- and taught. And yet one of the beautiful things that Jesus does is in Jesus' teaching, he wants to do something called build a fence around the teaching. What Jesus recognizes is that when we commit to something that really matters to us, we need to also pay attention to the conditions that can tear away at that commitment. Let me give you an example. Trivial example, I know. I love Oreos. I also know that I need to eat healthy. If I buy Oreos and put them in my cabinet, I am more likely to eat them and not eat as healthy as I should. Building a fence around that commitment to be healthy and not eat so many Oreos may mean that I don't buy Oreos and put them in my cabinet. What Jesus is doing here is saying, listen, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to our desire as human beings, let's pay attention to the conditions which can detract from our commitments. And let's tilt the playing field so that when we have to make hard decisions, we're more likely to make the right one. For someone who struggles with alcohol, that may mean not going to a bar, even if you're just going to have water. It may mean being honest and real with your friends about your struggles so that they can support you and not put you in conditions of temptation. What Jesus is doing and the powerful thing that Jesus is doing here that many rabbis in that time were doing was building a fence around these things that matter so that the playing field is tilted so when it gets difficult for us to make hard decisions, we're more likely to make the one we want to make. Everywhere in the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus, he enters into the difficulty and mess and challenge of everyday real life. And shows up for people who are vulnerable and hurting and wants to offer healing and grace and new life. And insofar as these passages have been weaponized to make people feel shame and guilt and have hurt and harmed people and caused people to stay in relationships they shouldn't, be stay, they shouldn't stay in, I don't think that matches with the way and the work and the wonder of God in Jesus Christ. So as uncomfortable as it makes me, There is power and there is hope. There is love and there is grace in these words of Jesus. There is forgiveness and there is new life. And there is an invitation for us to have a more extravagant and wide open welcome, just as Christ did. Jesus is God drawing it near to us, and God draws near to us in pain and sorrow, and difficulty, and brokenness, and grief. And so I want you to know that if you're struggling with a relationship, whether you're married or dating, whether you're divorced or not, I also want to say this. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to get therapy and counseling. I get therapy and counseling. Let me raise my hand. Marriage is hard. Life is hard. Relationships are hard. And let me just say a word to men. 
Everything about our culture conditions us, us not to ask for help as if that's some kind of weakness, as if somehow if we admit we need help or we admit that just going and talking to someone would make things stronger and better, that somehow we're bad or we've failed, it is okay to reach out and ask for help. And as people of faith, that is precisely what we trust in the person of Jesus. God reaching out to help, to heal, and to save. When we read scripture, if the end result is that we're not more loving toward ourselves and toward others, if we haven't entered into the hard work of healing, then maybe we've read scripture wrong. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you, Thanks for listening to the message this week. Visit southelkorncc.org where you can download reflection and discussion guides to dig deeper into the weekly scripture and message.